A country preacher was known for his enthusiasm in the pulpit. One Sunday, he got up and began to shout out, If this church is going to serve God, it's got to get down on its knees and crawl. And the audience yelled back, Make it crawl, preacher, make it crawl. And once this church has learned to crawl, it's got to get up on its feet and walk. Make it walk, preacher, make it walk, the audience responded. And once this church has learned to walk, it's got to begin to learn to run. Make it run, preacher, make it run, they said. And once this church has learned to run, it's got to begin to give. The congregation was quiet for a moment, then in unison responded. Let it crawl, preacher, let it crawl. Giving and money has about as much interest from people as waiting in the dentist's office for a root canal. Tragically, many preachers avoid this topic for fear that people will accuse them of being after their money. But this is not how the Bible approaches the topic of finance at all. In fact, we all know that the Bible is a very practical book. If we truly believe what it says, then it would benefit us to understand what God's word says about this very important area. According to Jesus, money is a spiritual issue. And since it's a spiritual issue, we need to address it. Stewardship is a priority of scripture. The Bible has placed a priority on the proper stewardship of our finances. In the New Testament, there are 40 verses that deal with water baptism. 275 verses talk about prayer. 350 verses talk about faith. And 650 verses talk about love. For those who give the excuse that I'm in the New Testament and tithing is the Old Testament, I'd like you to think on this. There are 2,350 verses that talk about finances. In fact, a full 15% of Jesus' teachings dealt specifically with money. In Matthew, Jesus talks about finances and wealth 88 times, in Mark, 54 times, and 92 times in the book of Luke. Jesus drew a connection between our spiritual life and our attitude between our possessions and money. Our attitude towards our wealth, and we are all wealthy, serves as a barometer of our spiritual health. Businessman and leadership guru Glenn Blanchett hits the nail on the head when he says, if you want to take the pulse of your faith, there are many places to look, beginning with your checkbook. The church treasurer counts what we give. God counts what we keep. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul gives instructions to the Corinthian church concerning giving. He says, in response to their faithfulness and giving to the need in Jerusalem in chapter 8, reading from verse 13 and 14, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. It would seem that there were some who were excusing themselves from their responsibility of giving by saying, I don't have anything to give. I'm sure God understands if I don't participate. Their seeming lack of resource was not an excuse to not fulfill their responsibility. Paul reminded them that it is not what we don't have that the issue is. What the issue is, is what are we doing with what we do have? In other words, our obedience in giving will overflow to blessing others and the result will be God is glorified and his name exalted. Paul carried on in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 12 and said this, The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Paul refers to their giving as service. 
It was not a chore or a ritual. They gave out of a sense of ministry to God. Our attitudes and actions about money and possessions convey a lot about our spiritual condition. It is difficult to be faithful in service if we are not faithful in the simple command of giving to God. And the simple truth we need to grasp is, giving is not about our money, it's about the condition of our hearts. In a passage we read from Matthew, Jesus is in the middle of a sermon we've affectionately called the Sermon on the Mount. It could also be called the keys to the abandoned life. Jesus spells out in the very clear terms how a person can really enjoy life. It's not by following a set of rules. It's by knowing a certain person and by following God's will for your life. So let's read Matthew 6 verses 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The one thing which robs people of joy and contentment that, the, that God wishes for us to enjoy in life is a bondage to materialism and things. In this world, there's a belief that life is divided into spiritual and material. But Jesus made no such division. He made it abundantly clear in this sermon that a right attitude towards possessions, money and material wealth is a mark of true spirituality. In all my time in ministry and being in the church, I've come across different attitudes that people have concerning money and materialism. The first one is this. This person says, I'll never have anything. The person who says this only sees what they don't have rather than what God has given them. The excuse the person gives for not giving is, God doesn't expect me to give what I don't have, does he? And it's depicted by the widow of Zarephath in two kings, who when asked by Elijah, what do you have in your house? She responds with nothing but a handful of flour. I'm going to cook it, then die. The widow missed the point. She had something. This is the kind of person who's constantly looking for the quick fix to their problems. They place their hope in luck, buy lottery tickets, and then wonder, why am I not getting blessed? They are constantly worried about why they don't have, instead of remaining faithful and holding firm to the promise of God, who says in Luke Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. The second attitude is, I don't deserve anything. This person sounds humble and spiritual, but make no mistake, this attitude is rooted in pious humility. It may sound spiritual, but no matter which way you slice it, it's still pride. In fact, both of these attitudes are different ends of the same measuring stick we call pride, and God hates it. In Proverbs 8.13, he says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum is the person who says this, the third attitude, I have to get everything. Often I'll hear people say, I'll begin tithing when I have enough, or when this deal goes through, I promise I'll give a tithe. If you're not tithing on 200 rand a week, you're not going to tithe on 1,000 rand a week. This person is pictured in the parable of the rich fool who produces a terrific crop. He talks to himself and he says, what can I do? My barn isn't big enough for this harvest. Then he says, here's what I'll do. 
I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll gather in all my grain and goods and I'll say to myself, self, you've done well. You've got it made and can now retire. Take it easy and have the time of your life. This is the person who lives life for today, never considering the impact his choices will have for the future. But listen to the somber conclusion Jesus gives to this man's life. Just then, God showed up and said, Fool, tonight you die, and your barn full of goods, who gets it? The last thing I would ever want to hear from God's mouth is fool. Now this attitude is closely aligned with the fourth attitude, with the person who says, I deserve everything. If the first two attitudes are rooted in pride, the last two are rooted in greed. And greed's epitaph reads, the person who dies with the most toys wins. Jesus gave a clear warning against greed. Speaking to the people, he went on, take care, protect yourself against the least bit of greed. Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. I'd like to believe that the attitude which describes the believer whose confidence is in God's hand to provide says, God has given me everything. Nowhere did Jesus magnify poverty or criticize the legitimate getting of wealth. The Bible says God made all things, including food, clothes, and precious metals. From the very beginning of creation, God declared that all things he had made were good in Genesis 1.31. And God knows that we need certain things in order to live. In 1 Timothy 6.17, the Bible says he has given us richly all things to enjoy. In Deuteronomy 8.17, the Lord is bold enough to declare to Israel, if you start thinking to yourselves, I did all this and all by myself, I'm rich. It's all mine. Well, think again. Remember that God, your God, gave you the strength to produce all this wealth. The proper way to view our possessions is that they are a trust given by God that we are responsible to manage. Oh, look at the time. I'm sorry. I just forgot something. I promised to take my parents out for tea after this service this morning. <laughs> this is really embarrassing. <laughs> I don't have any money on me. I left my wallet at home. Could someone give me a hundred rand? Oh, thanks, Christelle. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no. Can you give it to me now? Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Everything belongs to God and we are to serve as stewards, whether we are blessed with a lot or with a little. Now I can tell that many of you are wondering why someone would just pop out of their seats and hand me a hundred rand. Do you know why she did it? It's because it wasn't her money. It was mine. I gave it to her before the service. She was simply returning it to me. And that's exactly what we do when we practice the joy of biblical stewardship. We give back to God that which is his in the first place. Friends, we've never given God one thing. When we make an offering or a tithe, we're giving what he already owns. I'd like us to listen to the question Jesus asks in this passage. And he challenges us, where is your treasure? And he helps us find the answer by giving us a test. And the test is found in verses 19 and 20. And it asks us the question, how long will it last? Verse 19 is a negative command. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And verse 20 is the positive. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The first word that leaps out at us in these verses is the word treasures. Jesus did not say money because while everyone does not have a lot of cash, we all have things that we treasure. Our treasure may be a home, a car, a computer, our clothes, or even a position that we hold or seek after. While Jesus is not saying that it is wrong to have treasures, he is telling us that our focus should be on laying up treasures in heaven, not on earth. The first life skill that Jesus wants us to develop is to stop living just for today. 
This command is in the present tense. It literally means to stop storing up. We're to stop doing something that by nature we've been doing for most of our lives. Jesus knows that our natural inborn desire is to accumulate things. That doesn't mean that we can't have material possessions or own property or save for the future. The key lies in the little phrase, for yourselves. Jesus is forbidding the selfish, self-centered accumulating of goods as the major end of life. Two things happen to the things we own. The best clothes that were available in ancient times were, were a sign of wealth. Garments represented a considerable investment. Best clothes were made of wool, but no matter how beautiful the clothing, moths would often attack and chew right through the clothes. Coupled with the attack of the killer moths, vermin would get in and consume things of value. Secondly, our possessions can disappear. Anyone who's invested in the stock market knows this all too well. In Jesus' day, valuables were often buried out in the field or hidden in a brick wall. Back then, thieves would literally break into the walls and dig up the yard as they searched for valuables. If you try to store your wealth, the moths will find it, or vermin will consume it. If you try to hide it for yourselves, thieves can steal it. Jesus is saying that earthly wealth is very insecure. It either decays over time or it disappears altogether. Job 27, 16 and 20 provides a vivid description of this process. Though he heaps up silver like dust and clothes like piles of clay, he lays down wealthy but will do so no more. When he opens his eyes, all is gone. Earthly treasures are fleeting and futile, but heavenly treasures are secure. 1 Peter 1 verse 4 And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Treasures that we send on ahead are moth-proof, vermin-proof and burglar-proof. I repeat verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. The issue is not whether we will store up wealth, that's a given. The only question is where we will do our banking. Since earthly treasures are unstable and insecure, Jesus challenges us to make long-term investments that are permanent and guaranteed. So how do we make deposits on earth that yield dividends in heaven? Let me answer that in just one sentence. You store up treasures in heaven by investing your money in that which lasts for eternity. And I know of two things that will last forever the word of God and people. Since only the word of God and people last forever, we need to develop a long-term view. When we give of our financial resources to people in need, we are making a difference. The ultimate investment you can make is to give financially to help communicate the word of God to people. In the Congo, poor people who have nothing to give when the church offering is taken will dip their hand into the offering plate to symbolize the giving of themselves. There's also a story of a little crippled girl from the Congo with a crutch who came to church and saw everyone place their offerings in the offering bag. She had no money on her, but wanted to give to God so much that she gave the usher her crutch. And here's the point of the story. God doesn't want merely your money. Many people think that. They see God as having a giant hand extended towards them, ready to take whatever they have. It's a picture of selfish mankind. God wants all of you. He wants a life totally and completely committed to him in love and service. A life dedicated to doing things God's way and to being God's person on this earth. God wants a relationship with you that holds nothing back. And in return, he desires to hold nothing of himself 
back from you. Who gets the better end of this relationship? You do. You are a finite, imperfect human being. God receives you as you are. He gives you in return all of who he is. Infinite, perfect. And he asks you to receive him in fullness. And when you do, you can't help but prosper. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you accept us just the way we are. That you love us just the way we are. And Lord, that you want us, all of us, our entire beings, as acts of service to you. So Lord, as we steward our lives, as we steward our time, our talent, and our tithe, we know that we give you nothing that isn't already yours in the first place. So we surrender it all to you, Lord. We surrender it to you knowing that you are our God and our King, our provider, our leader, and our God. We thank you for the very many blessings you've poured out on us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.